Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. As you are again turning to that passage in your Bible, let me thank you for your engagement with this sermon series over the last few weeks. Five weeks ago, we began the series that ends this morning, entitled Race and the Gospel. The objective of the series was meant to be straightforward. We have sought to ask, what are the implications of the gospel for how we think as Christians about race and racism? Or, if you like, how does the gospel connect to the issue of race, and what are the implications of that connection for us as individuals and as a church? What I think we've seen over these last five weeks is that that connection is not an incidental one. This is not a minor theme in connection to the gospel. We don't have to try very hard to make the gospel speak to the subject of race. Rather, week after week, we have seen that the gospel directly connects to these questions. The gospel itself is what kills the hostility between people groups, Paul declares in Ephesians 2, verse 16. Here, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 11, here in the kingdom of God, present now in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It was with that profound truth still settling into our minds and hearts last week that we read James, who commands his readers in James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, James continues later on, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And if he has, what are the implications? Would we who claim the name of Jesus act in a way that would detract from his glory? Contrary to his very heart and purposes, so reasons James in chapter 2. And we argued last week that one stands on solid biblical ground to make that same argument regarding race. That James could just as easily have written, show no partiality. Has not God chosen those of every race and nation to be heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Indeed, he has. Where then can we go to see that most clearly? Where in the scriptures can we find one of the clearest statements as to the heart of God and the work of Christ with respect to the multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural reality of his eternal kingdom? Well, of course, there's no suspense to that question because Ashan read the passage earlier in the service. 
It's certainly not the only place we could go to see this, but I suggest there may be no more powerful passage in the scriptures on this subject than Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. Revelation chapter 5 is a chapter about God's purposes for the world within a book that's about God's purposes for the world, all brought about through his Son. And so my plan this morning is simple. I want to talk about God's purpose for the world, as expressed in Revelation 5, and then at the end, to challenge us individually and as a church to consciously be a part of that purpose. Let's turn now to Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. In Revelation 5, we are seeing through the eyes of the Apostle John in this chapter, and through John's eyes, what we see is the throne room of God Almighty. Revelation chapter 4 is the start of that scene. John writes in Revelation 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. John proceeds to detail this awesome scene. He writes of the one seated on the throne. He writes of the 24 elders seated around the throne. He writes about the four living creatures, full of eyes, with six wings, who day and night never cease to say, verse 8 of chapter 4, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9 of Revelation 4, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. That's where we are when we begin chapter 5. God receives eternal glory as the one who created everything. Only what was the purpose of that creation? To what end did God create all things? And how will it come about? That's the subject to which John's vision turns in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is it that's written on that scroll? We would have to read forward into Revelation to get the whole picture, so allow me just to summarize it here for you. Written on that scroll is the eternal, final plan of God for all things. 
the account of the end of redemptive history of God's purposes for the entire creation and especially for human beings. The writing on the scroll relates to the events that will bring history to its appointed conclusion and it's sealed. Seven times over it's sealed, verse 1 says. It's fully sealed, in other words. The point is that what's written on the scroll cannot take place unless the seals are broken, which, of course, they will be in chapters 6 through 8 of Revelation, if you've ever read it. This is where we find ourselves in chapter 5, verse 1, dear friends. If the scroll containing the final plan of God for the history of his creation is not opened, the promises of God recorded in the scriptures will not come to pass. Everything hangs on the scroll being opened, which is why it's verse 2 of chapter 5 that sounds the primary theme of the chapter. John writes, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Because you see, to open the scroll is to bring creation's story to its appointed end. Only one who can do that, one who can bring about what is written on the scroll, can break the seven seals. That's why the question has to be, who is Worthy. It's not surprising, assuming we grasp the weightiness of the question, to find that the initial answer given in verse 3 is that no one is worthy. Revelation 5, verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. There is no heavenly being, no angel. There is no mere mortal on earth. There is none even in the realm of the dead who can do this. John's reaction then is the right one. He continues in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps because he understands that there is no hope if the scroll cannot be opened. And then the narrative turns in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, John writes, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One has been found, John is told. Victory has been won by the Davidic Messiah, by Jesus, the lion from Judah's tribe. Now, if we were engaging in a full exposition of the book of Revelation, we would at this point stop and consider Old Testament texts like Genesis chapter 49, like 2 Samuel 7, like Psalm 89, like Isaiah 11, 
We would see how such texts as those fill out the meaning of what the angel declares in verse 5. But the point is clear for us this morning. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, has conquered as the Old Testament prophesied. And therefore, he will open the seven-sealed scroll. John continues then in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The apostle, having been told about a lion, looks again in the throne room only then to see a lamb. Why? Why is this lion now a lamb in John's vision? Do you see? It's because the conquering that makes the Lion of Judah worthy to reveal the decrees of God is a conquering that was achieved as a slain lamb. Once more, Old Testament passages such as Exodus chapter 12 about that first Passover night in Egypt or Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant would fill out the meaning of John's vision here. But the point, once again, isn't in doubt. Jesus was slain for the sake of his people, but now stands in the midst of the throne in triumph. The words of John the Baptist have been fully realized. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he's the risen one. Now he stands triumphant in the throne room of God, the lion, who is also the lamb. And so we see that the key that unlocks history is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, just as they had before God, seated on his throne in chapter 4, verse 10, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, the prayers of the saints, verse 9, and they sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And there it is. That's what history is about, brothers and sisters. This is where it's all going. What the angelic elders seated around the throne of God sing in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 5 to be 
magnified through the rest of the book of Revelation, climaxing in chapters 21 and 22, what these angelic elders sing there is the summation of everything. I want to spend what time we have then answering three simple questions that come out of those verses that are so central, and we'll do it quite quickly. Question one, what did Jesus do? Question two, for whom did Jesus do it? And question three, of course, my favorite question, why? Why did Jesus do this? First, what did Jesus do? Why is it that at this point in John's vision of the throne room of heaven, Jesus Christ, the lion who is the lamb, is the one worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? It's right there in the middle of verse 9. For they sing, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. Jesus Christ died at the hands of slaughterers. And by being slaughtered, language evokes the sacrificial offering system, by his blood being shed as a sacrifice, he ransomed people. Literally, the verb used here means he purchased them, he bought them meaning that the price that had to be paid was death. That's been clear from the very beginning. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, God said to the man in the Garden of Eden. The Bible is universally clear on this point. The wages of sin is death, Paul summarizes in Romans 6, verse 23. Jesus Christ, being slain, paid the ransom because people in bondage to sin must die. And so he pays that price instead of us. That is, at its simplest, what the cross is about. And in paying that price, he frees us from the bondage to sin. Listen earlier to how John puts this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Here's another way John says in very similar terms to our passage what this means. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us, John writes, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Notice there in Revelation chapter 1 how the blood of the Lamb set us free from our sins, John says. Putting that together with our text then, we have the full picture. The death of the Lamb is what was required. That was the price. That was the cost of our sins and Jesus was willing to pay it, to be our ransom that we could be set free. You were slain, the elders sing in our chapter, and by your blood you ransomed people. This is the gospel we've been discussing 
from Luke chapter 4, from Ephesians chapter 2, from Colossians chapter 3, from James chapters 1 and 2, here it is again. This is at the center of what Jesus does that makes him worthy. More could be said, of course. But their new song is sung because Christ's work on the cross is God's decisive work of salvation. The cross of Christ is the center of history, making possible the appointed end of all history. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. But which people? This is our second question. For whom did Jesus die? Who are the people in Revelation 5 verse 9? In fact, the first occurrence of the word people is not even there in the Greek text, though we're expected to supply it. For whom did Jesus pay such a ransom? The answer is in the very end of the verse. By your blood you ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation, John says. In the context of Revelation 5 and the cosmic significance of the worthy lamb taking the scroll, let that fact sink in. That in dying, in paying the ransom that stands at the center of history, and is the reason Jesus Christ can take the scroll from the Father's right hand, Jesus meant, Jesus intended, for always has it been his Father's intention, to gather a people, a kingdom, a priesthood from every tribe and language and nation. God Almighty, the creator of all things, intends to have a people, not just from some ethnic groups, but from all ethnic groups. The four terms that are used there, tribe, language, people, nation, the point isn't that those are somehow finely nuanced different distinctions, but that together they cover everyone. The whole range of ethnic diversity in the world God purposed to have eternally a people that is maximally diverse. John chapter 11 verse 52 says that Jesus would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is the point of the end of verse 9 of Revelation 5. With his blood shed on the cross, the lamb purchased, he ransomed, a people scattered among all the nations from every corner of the earth. Which is what I think we should keep explicitly in mind as we then consider my third question, which is why? Why did Jesus do all this? How would you explain this to someone who wants to know what your faith is all about ultimately? How do you understand the purpose of life, the goal of history? Why did Jesus willingly die like a lamb that is led to the slaughter for people from every tribe and language and people and nation? What's the point of it all?
And I think the answer is to be found in two little words in the middle of verse 9 that are then explained in the terms of verse 10. The two little words in the middle of verse 9, of course, are the words for God. I skipped them a minute ago. They shouldn't be skipped. Worthy are you, the elders say, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, racial diversity and ethnic harmony among the ransomed people of God is for God. In what sense? Well, what has Jesus made them to be? Verse 10 tells us that, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In other words, it was God's design in the death of his son to ransom people from every race and language and make them into one kingdom, that they would be radically united, all having him as their one and the same king whom they would worship and obey, and with whom they would live eternally. All of them will be priests. All of them will reign. They will fulfill the purposes of God in creation itself. The same purposes of creation for which all of, all of heaven erupts in praise at the end of chapter 4. Think of it. If all who are purchased from every tribe are priests to God and fellow rulers with God who worship God and reign with God, there must be among them the deepest possible unity in truth and love. This is the eternal realization of what we have seen from Paul and James and Jesus as they have urged their readers and their followers in the New Testament to reflect the reality of the gospel. Life in the new heavens and the new earth is the final realization of that gospel. It is the kingdom fulfilled, an unbelievably diverse population all ransomed for the glory and worship of God, their creator, as they reign with him on the earth forever. How can there be any kind of division or suspicion or hostility or mistreatment in the church of Jesus Christ among races when the vision of John is what shapes our final great hope? It would be unthinkable. The original mandate given to Adam and Eve to rule the world for God will be the eternal vocation of people from every ethnicity and culture. It is a picture of profoundly beautiful diversity that is expressed in profoundly beautiful harmony, unity, togetherness, and praise. God's purposes for his creation will come to pass. That's what Revelation is all about. And I guess the thing I want to leave us with this morning is the fact that God's aim, 
to have racial and ethnic diversity in his kingdom is not temporary. It is not circumstantial simply to our time on this earth. The ethnic diversity described in Revelation 5 verse 9 will be preserved eternally. Though this is resisted by almost all English translations, the standard Greek texts of the New Testament agree in Revelation 21 verse 3 that the original wording is, is to be translated this way. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. Not people, peoples. They will be his peoples. Diversity is part of the eternal purposes of God. This is where the glory of God will be forever on display. What then is the eternal result of the accomplishment of the Lamb to bring this all about? To bring history itself to its appointed end? This is where verses 13 and 14 of our text leave us this morning. As John catches just a glimpse of it. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 36 of God the Father, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And Paul also says in Colossians 1, verse 16, that all things were created through the Son and for the Son. John's vision and Paul's theology agree. This is what all creation was designed for. This is where nations and races and languages see their final purpose. This is the meaning of all things, the goal of God in history, the aim of the death of his son. To him be glory forever. Which has to leave us, I think, with this final question at the end of our five-week series. If this is the ultimate purpose of God in history and our eternal destiny, how can we, we individually and we as a church, be consciously part of that reality now? Having gotten just a taste of heaven, do you not long to experience something of its joys even now? What then might we do? Well, in closing, let me make a few suggestions, though I suspect others may have more to contribute along practical lines than I do. But first, let me say, at the end of these five weeks, it is entirely essential that you and I and any of us repent of any past sins of partiality or racism 
or of any present sinful attitudes along such lines that the Lord may have revealed to your heart over these weeks. Thanks be to God, a few of you have in fact written to me to say this is precisely what has happened in the course of these weeks. That has to be number one. But then secondly, I hope you'll consider how you can grow individually in Christ-like ways when it comes to matters of race. How might this series inform the way we pray? How you pray for the church, how you pray for the work of the gospel in us and through us, in our community, in our context, in the context where you live and work, for the glory of God that we've discussed today to be on display. How can you intentionally expose yourself to voices, voices from the past, voices from today, that will challenge and inform and guide us in these areas? What books might you read that could help you to better understand and listen to different perspectives from within the kingdom of God? What friendships across racial and ethnic lines might you seek out in these days? Might you cultivate both Christian and non-Christian? How can we begin to dialogue intentionally with others about these issues and others like them and learn from them? If you find yourself in a place of life now or in the future where you will be moving, in what neighborhood would you choose to live and why? What church would you choose to join and why? How are questions of God exalting racial diversity part of your thinking about such things, if they are at all? As part of our witness for Christ, in what ways can we publicly stand with those who suffer from oppression and injustice? These and other questions like them are what I am asking myself at the end of these weeks together. And they're what I hope we will be asking ourselves as a church in days to come. I know that such things are only a beginning but in taking such steps, we follow the one who is preparing for himself a people. A people from all peoples who will worship him forever. And so, brothers and sisters, we move forward in hope, joining our voices with theirs, even now, saying and singing with them to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.